0: Back in August, my wife and I, Becca, we went out to British Columbia for our honeymoon. Seems like everybody in Ontario went to BC last summer. We went out for our honeymoon and you ask the locals for recommendations and people will say, oh, check out this cafe. They've got great oat milk lattes and vegan kale muffins. And you nod, you're like, "Mm, that sounds great. No, we're not checking that out. But another friend told us about donuts. They said, my friends, we have donuts in British Columbia. And so we went to this place in North Vancouver, it's called Honey's Donuts. And they had the best donuts I've ever had in my life. I didn't know donuts were that good. Probably some friends from America, you know, they know what good donuts are. I've never seen them in Ontario before. They were so good, I had three of them. They had three different flavors. I'm just trying to support local business. I had them all, they were fantastic. We came back home at the end of our honeymoon. A Few weeks later, my wife is on a canoe trip with some friends. So I'm home alone, Friday night, 9.30, sitting on the couch and I get a notification on my phone. It goes ding, ding, and I look, it's Uber Eats telling me about some promotion, some coupon, some deal. Uh, And then I think to myself, I wonder if Toronto has donuts. And so I start searching and I find all these bakeries that make fine artisanal donuts, and I add them all to my cart. I almost buy them, but right before I check out, I throw my phone away. I say, no, not today, Satan, (laughs) and I resist temptation for that moment. But the problem is now Uber knows what I like. And so they send me texts and coupons and pictures and they say, come back, Sawyer. Eat the donuts, Sawyer. You will be happy, Sawyer. And I'm stuck in between this battle of wanting to eat delicious donuts and wanting to have money and wanting to be healthy and, you know, wanting to be able to to see my toes. And many parts of life are characterized by this type of battle. Sometimes it's things funny like donuts, but sometimes our wrestling is with much deeper issues, different desires that we have and habits and proclivities and parts of our personality that are very real, but not things that we want to perhaps engage with it's hard because it feels like a big tug of war game. And we're the piece of rope and we're, you know, stuck between these two opposing forces. I want to be responsible with my money, but I also would, you know, like some new things. Perhaps I want to rest and I want to spend time with my family. I want to honor God, but I also want to do a good job at work. I want to excel in my career. Perhaps I want to be faithful to my spouse, but I feel my eyes drifting never satisfied, always hungry and looking for other things. I want to be peaceful. I want to be loving. I want to be patient. But I also want to lash out. I want to get even. I want to make these people get what's coming to them. And this struggle between the head and the heart, between what we know we should be doing and what we feel like we want to do is a lifelong struggle for everyone, whether you're a Christian or you're not a Christian. We are all in this fight. Now, today we're gonna be looking at the fact that the Christian walks through this battle in a very different way compared to how they walked through it before they were in Christ. This is what Paul's gonna be talking about this week as we walk through our series in Romans. Paul's talking about the struggle of someone. The question is, who is Paul talking about? Is he talking about someone who is in Christ Under grace, or is he talking about someone who is not in Christ and is under the law? And this particular passage, actually, funny enough, it's the most controversial part of all of Scripture. This, Romans 13 to 25. It's not Genesis and the origins of the earth. It's not Revelation and the end times. It's not questions about predestination or women in ministry or homosexuality. It's this right here, this portion in Romans. Uh, the early church fathers, they tended to lean this way in understanding it. But the reformers like Luther and Calvin, they tended to lean over this way. If you look at a lot of the big names in biblical studies like N.T. Wright and Doug Moo, they tend to lean over this way. But a lot of big pastors like uh, Timothy Keller and John Piper, they tend to lean over this way too. But the good news is this, doesn't matter if you understand the passage this way or this way, you get to the same point. You come to the same conclusion. So the main thing is the plain thing in this passage. So all this being said, let's dive into it. For the last two weeks, we've been walking through Romans chapter seven, where Paul has been discussing this. It feels like this abstract and distant relationship between sin and the law. But when you think of law, think of God revealing to humanity how we ought to live. God is sharing with us how we ought to interact with each other and with him. He's the guy who made everything, including us. So he kind of knows and he has the right to tell us how we ought to live. Okay, but we see this strange language in Romans of being free from the law, being freed from the captivity of the law. And if I'm seeing that the law is something that I'm being freed from, if the law is something that keeps me captive, kind of the natural response is to think, wow, if this thing keeps me captive, If it's a source of condemnation, if I need to be freed from it, it doesn't sound like a very good thing. And Paul is addressing this misunderstanding. So we're starting in verse 13. Verse 13, it not only summarizes what Paul just said earlier in chapter 7, but it kicks off the next portion. So did that which is good, the law, God's revelation, did that which is good then bring death to me? Is, is the law the problem? By no means, he's saying no way, it was sin producing death in me through what is good. So there's a relationship here that's being painted. Sin works through what is good. Sin is working through the law to do two things in order, one, that sin might be shown to be sin. There's an identifying factor that's happening here. And two, through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual. The law is good, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. The word flesh, it's the Greek word for carb. It's the part of you that wants donuts. It's the part of you that wants to do the wrong thing. So the law reveals what's already there, and it's far worse than we originally thought. This is what Brandon showed us last week. Brandon showed us the fact, the depth, and the deceitfulness of sin. Until I knew how I ought to be, I had no idea of how much I fell short. In high school, at least in Ontario, there's a Canadian fitness test that you have to do, and they say, hey, a healthy male and a healthy female, you should be able to do this thing you should be able to do this thing. There was a standard imposed. And I thought I was a reasonably flexible dude. Like I can tie my shoes without pulling a muscle and you know I can scratch most parts of my back. But there was a flexibility test you had to do on these Ontario fitness tests. And I was horribly flexible or inflexible, unflexible. I was not flexible at all. And I had no clue how unflexible I was until I took this test. So too with the law without the law i had no clue how sinful i was also the law in some ways it it brings out what's there it agitates what's there last week we looked at covetousness how without the law now i oh, pardon me because of the law now i covet all the more because i know what i should be i know what i should have in the uh, the kind of the, the autobiography written by Augustine, it's called Confessions, and he's confessing his life to God in this prayer. He talks about being a child, and he was told about an orchard, and there were trees in the orchard with fruit, and he was told, don't take the fruit from that orchard. And as soon as he heard that, he was like, well, I'm gonna go take that fruit. And so he broke in, he stole the fruit, he got out, and when he got the fruit, he wasn't even hungry. He didn't even want it. He threw it to the pigs, but it was being told, don't take the fruit, that he took the fruit. Same with the garden, Adam and Eve. God said, you can have all of these wonderful things, but that there is off limits. And they were tempted. Hey, do you want to be like God? Take that fruit. And so we want to be like God. The law aroused in him, the law aroused in us, this fundamental fault of the human heart, in the human heart, the desire to be God rather than to be under God the desire to be our own savior rather than the desire to come and cry out for a savior. In Florida, there's beaches, yeah, but there's signs on the beaches that say, don't ride the manatees. And I saw those and I thought, that's amazing. You can ride manatees? Becca, change your plans. We're not going to Disney World. <laughs> We're riding manatees. God help me. So Paul is summarizing the condition of the person who has just learned from the law how evil they are, the depth of their sin, the fact of their sin, the deceitfulness of their sin. And continuing on in this chapter, Paul is going to continue to describe the wrestle and the situation of the person who is still under sin. So let's keep reading. If you have a physical Bible or your phone, I encourage you to check it out. We'll have it on the screen. It just gets wordy. "'For I do not understand my own actions.'" For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. This is the contrast. Now, if I do what I do not want, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. Greek word for carbs. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. This is what's being contrasted. I want to do the right thing, but I can't pull it off. Only a couple more verses. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. This is the big idea here. But sin that dwells within me. So what's the problem with this situation? Israel, the people under the law, they're in a predicament. They're in a challenging situation. They have these desires, but they can't pull it off. They wanna do the right thing and they keep doing the wrong thing. What's the problem? What's the contributing factor here? What's the cause? Paul's trying to eliminate a couple options. It's not this and it's not this. He's excusing two options. He's exonerating firstly, the law. The law isn't your problem. The law just identifies that you have a problem. The problem is the sin within you. Not only is it there, not only is sin actually present within you, it's far worse than you originally thought. To illustrate this, Timothy Keller, he uses the example of the story of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. You might be familiar with it. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde It's a novella. It's a little 80-page novel from 1886 by Robert uh, Robert Louis Stevenson. It's a story about this man named Dr. Jekyll. That's Dr. Jekyll. And he notices within himself these competing desires. He notices there's kind of two parts to himself. There's a good part and a bad part, an evil part. He calls himself an incongruous compound. Here are two quotes about what he says from the book. With every day and from both sides of my intelligence, the moral and the intellectual, the head and the heart, this is what he's talking about, I thus drew steadily nearer to the truth by whose partial discovery I have been doomed to such a dreadful shipwreck that man is not truly one but two. I learned to recognize the thorough and primitive duality of man, the two parts, I saw that of the two natures that contended in the field of my consciousness, even if I could rightly be said to be either, it was only because I was radically both. There's two parts to himself. There's a good part and a bad part. And he's saying, both are equally me. You know, the little, the angel and the devil on the shoulder. Sometimes you see, they're both me. This is what he's saying. So Dr. Jekyll, He thinks, okay, I'm going to make a concoction. A potion is what he makes. And he says, I'm going to make this potion. I'm going to drink it. And I'll turn into another person. Basically the the bad side of me. And I'll do all the bad stuff. I'll get it out of my system. And then I'll come back. This is how he wants to manage his behavior. And so he drinks this potion and he becomes Mr. Hyde. Mr. Hyde is a little creepy dude on the corner there. And Mr. Hyde, he is all of the worst parts of Dr. Jekyll. This is his bad side, and it's horrible. It's way worse than what he thought. Mr. Hyde is selfish. He's narcissistic. He's rude. He's violent. He's murderous. He he stomps on this little child. He beats someone to death with a stick. And Dr. Jekyll had no clue that this much wickedness was inside of himself. So he vows. He says, all right, I'm not going to drink this potion anymore. I won't let Mr. Hyde out. I'm not going to do this again. And what happens? Well, the problem is that the bad part of him, Mr. Hyde, the evil part, it's stronger than him. And he fails to actually contain it, to handle it, to manage it. And Mr. Hyde starts coming out and transforming even without drinking the potion. The bad part of himself breaks out. He's not able to contain it. And it's stronger than himself. He begins to transform into him. He's powerless to ultimately stop the evil within him. So that's the the two parts of Romans. The first part is that there is a Mr. Hyde within him. And the second part of Romans that we're looking at today is that he is ultimately powerless to contain with strain and overpower the evil part of himself. This is the second part of Romans. Now, did the potion make Mr. Hyde? Yes and no. The potion revealed the identity, the fact of Mr. Hyde, and it also showed how much worse Mr. Hyde is than Dr. Jekyll ever imagined. And this this story paints a really bleak and pessimistic view of human nature. And it's reasonable to assume that this story was inspired by Romans 7. Robert Louis Stevenson, he was a Christian. The person under the law is like Dr. Jekyll, unable to fully dominate and handle and overpower their sin. Let's see how Paul puts it. Let's keep reading. So I find it to be a law. This is Paul making a conclusion. You know how in math you do all the calculations, you draw a line and you say, all right, this is the answer. So Paul is drawing a conclusion from everything he's saying. This is a law about the law. I find it to be a law. You could do like a little column right there. That when I want to do right, Evil lies close at hand, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. When we want to do the right thing, Mr. Hyde is always in the shadows. He's always lurking in the background. For I delight in the law of God, in my inner being. I want to do the right thing. But I see in my own members, pardon me, for but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me Captive. This is an important word. captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? So now we see the full scope of the problem that's put here. It isn't the law at the, that's the problem. The law so I can't even talk. The law shows sin for what it is. The problem also it isn't Israel's desire to honor the law right? This person here under the law is said to delight in the law of God. And Israel delighted in the law of God. It's a gift to have God's revelation. Here's two examples. If you look at Psalm 19 and Psalm 119, they're both just praising God and his law. Psalm 19, 9 and 10. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. The psalmist is saying that God's law is sweeter than honey. That's how much they delight in the law. Look at Psalm 119, 9 and 10. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. But look, I do wander. When I want to do good, evil lies close at hand. Who will deliver me? When it says wretched man that I am, wretched means a weary soldier someone who's exhausted from doing battle. Paul summarizes all of this with the last verse. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. This is Paul's concluding remark. And actually in the middle of it, He says, thanks be to God, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Who will save me? And it's kind of like a little interjection. It's like a midway, hallelujah, in the middle of it. Thanks be to God. But he summarizes the condition of the person under the law by saying this, I serve the law of God with my mind. I want to do the right thing. But with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. When we are under the law, we are under the power of sin. Said to be Sold under sin, slaves to the power of sin. Paul's concluding description of the person under the law is that they want to do the right thing, but ultimately they're slaves to sin. Here's what we see in this passage in 13 to 25. The law leaves us in a battle that we cannot win. The law leaves us in a battle we cannot win. On our own, none of us can overcome Mr. Hyde. And this was even something that intellectuals in Paul's time fascinate, were fascinated by. They ruminated on this, this weird fact. The Socratic philosopher Epictetus, Epictetus, he talked about this in his dialogues, or the, the Roman poet Ovid, he says this in his Metamorphoses I see and approve the better course, but I follow the worse. I want to do the right thing, but I can't. In contemporary discussions of free will. We talk about first order desires and second order desires. This is the talked about in a lot of movies. If you know the movie Lilo and Stitch, Stitch is torn between trying to love his new family, but he was this alien bred for destruction. We talk about wrestling with our demons or in the Lord of the Rings, right? There's there's Gollum and Schmeagel and there's this good part of him and this evil part of him that wants to do the right thing and the wrong thing. Paul is showing the inability of broken people to be perfect. If you are are a Christian, you can relate to this. You say, I see myself here. I wrestle with this. I still wrestle with doing the right thing. It's probably scary how much you can relate to this. Here's the thing though. For those who are in Christ, this is not our wrestle. This is not how we wrestle. We still wrestle, but this is not how we wrestle. This isn't how we do battle. When we are under the law, we're in the battle we cannot win. But now we are under Christ. And the gospel is a victory that we cannot lose. So we go from a battle that we can't win to a battle that we can't lose. You are a new creation. This is the message that Paul has been driving home in Romans. Let me prove it to you. We were unrighteous. Now we are righteous. We were enemies of God. Now we are. We are friends of God. We were in Adam. Now we are raised in Christ. We were spiritually dead. Now we are spiritually alive. We were slaves to sin. Now we are free from sin. We were under the law. Now we are under grace. We were in the flesh. Now we are in the spirit. Before you were saved, the part of you that desired to do evil and the part of you that desired to do good were both equally you. They were both equal natural powers from the same mind. But once you are saved, you receive a new spirit, you receive a new creation, you receive a new power. Galatians five actually illustrates this well, 16 to 17 from chapter five. But I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For, look at this, for these are opposed to each other, this is it, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. The flesh is now opposed to keeping you from doing the things you want to do. The Christian life isn't what we have to do. It's what we get to do. It's what we want to do. Our new heart and our new desire. So in this warfare, you aren't, as crazy as it sounds, you aren't really divided anymore. There are two selves in battle, but one of them isn't really a self. It's dead. It's a husk. It's a shell. It's a shadow. It's our old self that's been put to death. The old is gone. The new has come. I've died to my sin and risen with Christ. Before Christ, this action, this sinful desire, this ugly habit of yours, that was a true expression of yourself. But now not anymore. It doesn't satisfy you like it used to. It doesn't Scratch the itch the same way. You are now in a battle you can't lose. And hey, I uh, I want to be sensitive to this truth that you may hear this and it's kind of hard to believe. I know I'm a new creation. I know I've been made new, but I don't always feel like it. I still feel this pull of my old ways. I'm still in, still in the same environment. I still hang with the same people. Those old things are still there. This is what theologians call the tension between the already and the not yet. We say that we're seated with God in the heavenlies. Yeah, it kind of still feels like Thornhill. God sees things as completed, but we are still in the middle of the process. So this, this is certain, but it's not yet completed. This is who you are going to be. This is who you were. And we're still somewhere in the middle. So take, Take refuge in this. The end is absolutely assured. There will be a perfect you. There will be a healed you. There will be an unburdened you with Jesus, like Jesus, in the spirit, no longer wrestling against the flesh, in the kingdom of heaven, the best version of you. But in the meantime, we're still walking home. And what does this walk look like? well, I don't need self-help. I need God help. I don't need, I don't need to pull myself up. I need God to pull me up. Uh, in Philippians, it says this, he who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it. There is no one that Jesus starts working on that he stops working on. There's nobody who Jesus forgives and changes his mind. The best is yet to come. So Christian, take comfort in this. Rest in this, why? Because knowing this changes how we approach growing in holiness and putting our sin to death. We move from behavioral management to miraculous transformation. I'm not just trying to grit down and not do it. I'm asking God to transform my heart, to give me a new heart as well. We move from a fight we cannot lose Pardon me, we move from a fight we cannot win to a fight we cannot lose. You can put it this way. We don't fight for the victory. We fight from the victory. We don't fight for the victory over sin. We fight from the victory over sin. We don't fight for the victory over the powers and principalities of this world, over the dark parts of ourselves, over the brokenness and fallenness of creation and us within it, we fight from the victory, the blood-bought victory through Christ. This is the only way to experience true transformation and freedom. All other options lead to exhaustion, frustration, and despondency. So on our own, I can't do it. I get frustrated and I just dive headlong back in. So where do you today, where do you today need the spirit to transform you? Where are you still trying to do this in your own strength? Are you trying to do this in your power or the spirit's power? Where do we corporately as a church need the spirit to work in our hearts as well? Um, I think one of the areas that we overlook a lot is that of relational harmony. Perhaps it's the most overlooked part of sanctification. We think that we can be filled with the transforming power of the Holy Spirit and still be wrapped up in bitter conflict, to be horrible to people and claim the name of Christ. And this, I'm not overstating this. Let's look at Ephesians 5 very, very briefly. Paul talks about be filled with the Spirit. And then he lists all these forms of relational harmony. And then he goes on and he talks about husbands and wives. Look, and do not get drunk with wine. I'm starting in verse 18, Ephesians 5. For that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And look what he says, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody. That's being in harmony together. To the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everyone pardon me, and for everything, I'm reading into it, to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Be filled with the Spirit and walk in love. So often we claim the name of Christ and treat each other horribly, we, we treat church and the body of Christ as if this is just a thing for me to come and enjoy. And if I don't, you know, like all of the parts of it, well, they, they, better, they better fix something. Are we coming in with an attitude of consumption? Or are we coming in with an attitude of contending? Contending for peace, contending for love. John thirteen thirty five says this, by this all people will know that you are my, my disciples. If you have love for one another, they will know us by our love for one another, not by our concerts and coffee cups and T-shirts and posters, but by our love for one another. This is why we pass the peace in our services. We're not just trying to hold hands and, and be nice. The passing of the peace we're sharing with one another, the peace that we have received from God. Christ says, blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called children of God. And so we're passing this with one another. Also, the time of passing the peace was an opportunity to make peace with those that you had conflict with. It was not a time to come and receive communion, to come to the altar and celebrate the unity that we have in Christ if we still are in conflict. So passing of the peace was a time to pass the peace or to make peace if we still had conflict and hate in our heart. This is why we pass the peace So if nothing else, we can ask God to do this into our hearts today, to give us more love for one another, to give us greater unity in Bayview, not only for ourselves, but also for our witness in the world. So to summarize what Paul has said today, he shows the futility of the person trying to be perfect under the law. The law leaves us in a battle we cannot win, but the gospel gives us a victory that we cannot lose. And so now this changes our posture, We don't fight for the victory. We fight from the victory. And you act a lot differently when the victory is secured. So let's pray and let's respond to this. Celebrating the victory that we have and humbly asking God to continue by the power of His Spirit to transform us even more into His likeness. Let's pray. God, thank you just for the, the gift of your Son, the gift of your Spirit and the power that is in it, Father. And thank you for this, this warning, this illustration of the emptiness of the law for salvation and for sanctification, Father. So would you humble us and would your spirit continue to grow us into the people that you want us to be, Father? Would you give us love for one another? Would you give us your perspective, your peace, your grace, Father? And Would you continue to grow us? We thank you for all this and we ask all this in your name. Amen.